baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Do companies even have consciences anymore? Well, I'm not sure, Holly, that they ever did. I mean, the reality is um, a company is an entity. It's not capable of having a conscience. So it's really the people that are working in organizations and their moral judgment and the way they're thinking about issues that we have to rely upon. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to In-Depth. I'm KCBS reporter Holly Kwan, and joining me this week is Ann Skeeton, Senior Director of Leadership Ethics at the Markla Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. She works with boards and CEOs and company leaders to reshape corporate culture so you see more ethical and positive business outcomes. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on the radio. Thanks for having me. So um, you said that it, companies themselves don't actually have to have, you know, the moral compass. It's it's the people. And it sounds to me like you're the moral compass now that comes in when, when companies go off the rails. Well, sometimes I think there you, you see more executives. Mark Zuckerberg lately has started to talk about wanting to partner more with academia. So you certainly do see that um, business leaders are starting to appreciate that there are other sources that can help them to um, c- create the kind of culture that they are hoping to have in their companies. So are there are there companies that um, are going off the rails and we just don't see them make the headlines? I mean, how many how many really are there? Well, I think we are seeing a number of companies make the headlines, unfortunately, in pretty dramatic ways that um, really point to the fact that there's been underlying issues in them for quite some time. So, for instance, um, what may have surprised you or did you always know that they were there, that it was the rest of us that were blind to it? Well, I do think um, those of us, uh, you know, I've been a woman in the business world for over 30 years. So those of us that entered the business world with some assurance that cultures would become more healthy, uh, almost that that was about to happen as we were entering the workforce and then haven't experienced that change ourselves, we're certainly one audience of uh, skeptics, if you will. But then it's also the case that given the work that I do, that traditionally when I come to work with an organization, there are some ways to spot uh, whether or not they're having issues. Okay, so what do you look for? Well, I look, first of all, for um, what they emphasize. So, um, you know, on a visit a number of years ago to Uber, when I was uh, bringing a guest to visit them, I was struck by the fact that they emphasized some fairly superficial things. They showed me their flavored water and their coffee kegs, and they walked me around their really cool environment, and isn't this a neat place to work? But it wasn't substantive. It was much more of the superficial aspects of working there. And then when we actually were engaged in the meeting we came for, um, you know, there was some evident ways that they were dismissive of the people, the employees that were in the room, and the fact that they had brought information uh, with them to share uh, and they weren't even consulted, so they sat through the whole meeting and they didn't you know, um, get to talk. And then just some of the phrases and the things that are used in the way that people talk about, uh, at, at that point, their consumer information could help to us to be able to see, oh, wow, this is an organization that's that's likely to have some issues. What kind of phrasing? Well, they're not, uh, you know, you want to see an organization 
refer to um, something that they've defined as as good <laughs> in their world, a, a mission statement, a set of values that they can actually use to make decisions. And um, so in some organizations, and if I think back to that visit and, and others, that's not the only one, um, you know, it's when they're either um, – they don't seem to have actually a rubric for making decisions. It seems to be more, um, you know, uh, fly by the seat of their pants. Okay, so a lot of red flags there, when, uh-huh. at least in your experience. Um, what what would be the good things? You know, if somebody was going into uh, a company and, and interviewing, you know, it, most of the time it's like, okay, like me, like me, right? But from the candidate's perspective, what kinds of things should they be looking for? I think candidates should be looking for um, healthy organizations. And a healthy organization is one, first of all, maybe you can notice it by the absence of something. There's, a, I think, a crisis in, in corporate culture right now because we have so much fear in the workplace. We have people who are afraid on multiple levels. So I refer to it as kind of managing your Maslow, right? You have to sort of meet people's basic needs. So as you come in as a candidate, you can look around and see, do people here feel respected? Do they feel, uh, you know, at the at their most basic level, taken care of? In other words, are they being paid fairly, or are you hearing grumbling or sort of uh, references to inequities right out of the gate? And it's usually if you're paying attention to those things, and if you ask questions about that, uh, you ask questions about how people are evaluated, and does does the person that you're interviewing with feel that they're treated fairly and with respect, and are their ideas listened to? Those are some of the things that can help you to appreciate. Is this, uh, is this an environment where people feel really safe and happy coming to work? It surprised me, and this is an, this is an old strategy, but um, I remember back when um, you used to have uh, corporate cafeterias or, you know, oh, look, they do your dry cleaning or, you know, they'll, they'll do an on-site um, car detailing uh, service for you. And uh, it wasn't until somebody pointed out to me that said, yeah, that's how they keep you working. And you don't have to do all those other things. And I was thinking, ooh, these are neat little perks. But I didn't see it from the other side until someone pointed it out. Yeah. Well, I think that all of those changes that we see in business environments can always sort of be double-edged swords, right? So it's the, it's sort of what's the intent of bringing them into the workplace in the first place? And then how are they managed? So I think initially, probably there was really um, positive intentions behind some of those moves. Oh, let's make things easier for our employees and, and you know reduce the complexity in their lives. I could imagine that some of those very same things you just described, Holly, were seen as ways to make it easier, for example, for women to be in the workforce. Maybe they felt they were addressing, you know, making it easier for women in the workforce to take care of tasks like dry cleaning that they were typically taking care of in their um, in their home breakdown of uh, responsibilities. But then anything sort of taken to an extreme can always have that that downside, that the, the negative to it. And so then, yes, you have to start being aware of, whoops, now we've got people here and their their lives aren't balanced or they're not taking care of themselves physically or they're not eating well. So then the next thing you see is sort of the advent of the, the chef in the cafeteria. And or the, the corporate gym. Yeah, and the gourmet food and the wellness programs and all those things. We, we've heard Facebook recently talk about the fact that they want to build places for people to live because they're trying, I think, again, well-intentioned, trying to address the fact that there's a housing crisis in the Bay Area. And how can we take some of the pressure off of our employees, but maybe not thinking down the path to hmm, the employee that's living on campus and then leaves for whatever reason, either changes jobs or worse, is asked to leave. How will that be handled? And just the fact that, um, you know, sometimes it's healthier for people to have a shift 
in their day to not be feeling like they're at work all the time. Okay, you you were at at Uber mm-hmm. and or you visited Uber and we saw what happened there. Actually, what happened there? I mean, how does that how does that how is that allowed to be to exist? Well, I think there's a couple of things that are uh, going on in the in the startup culture, and I think uh, Uber is a, is perhaps exemplary of why um, those early investors in companies need to start thinking with a slightly longer term horizon than just getting the money out for their fund, because we've seen how much the underlying value of Uber has been damaged by some of the realities of their corporate culture that came uh, forward. So there's a few things. First of all, just the way the companies are set up, the class of stock structure that gives maybe undue influence to a founder. There's the reality that many of those founders are relatively young and their age isn't really the issue. It's the fact that moral judgment is developmental, just like everything else, just like learning to read and write. You get better at it over time. There are stages that we all go through and we're not kind of fully baked in that way right, until right. somewhere kind of in we the we're all young and stupid at yeah, point. and in the middle of our adulthood and so it, you see people um, who are given a lot of responsibility and power at a very relatively early age and then some of the checks and balances like the corporate board that would be able to provide that oversight and guidance are somewhat undermined when you have those stock structures that give all that power or just uh, the amount of stock that the founder may have in the uh, holding in the company that makes it um, appear anyway that the board's hands are tied. And that's not always the case. We certainly saw that eventually they found their way through it in the Uber situation and figured out a way to uh, manage out the founding CEO and bring in a new executive team. Uh, but I think those are some of the things that contributed to the challenges there. Okay, so Uber's new um, CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, is doing these TV spots uh, meant to rehabilitate the, the company's reputation. One of our core values as a company is to always do the right thing. And if there are times when we fall short, we commit to being open, taking responsibility for the problem, and fixing it. This begins with new leadership and a new culture. A new culture. So is this a, a smart way to influence public perception? Well, it's a smart way to influence public perception, but it's also uh, an important uh, thing for a leader to do whenever, you know, I work with a model whenever we're trying to talk to leaders, they'll, they'll sort of ask kind of what is it that you can actually do to promote ethical good behavior in your organization. So first, there's the integrity and character of the leader themselves. Uh, him or herself, but then there's also certain actions they can take. And what I see um, the CEO of Uber doing in this instance is what I refer to as one of the steps is kind of clarifying culture. So, you know, things will go wrong. And when they go wrong, how does the organization respond? How quickly and how clearly? And can they articulate um, which are the values that they intend to uh, bring forward and hold on to. He And he's trying, I think, to do that. This is a short message, right? So he's not going to get into the specifics of it. But it is signaling, at least to his internal workforce and to external constituents, hey, I understand the big picture issue here is the culture of the organization, and I'm working on it. And it, that's a good thing to do. It implies a transparency that may not have been evident before. Right. And it also really holds him to a standard. I mean, I, here's an executive that I really feel for. He's been willing to come into a very challenging situation. Um, he's tried to bring in a new team of executives. Some of the people he's brought in have then in turn been criticized for some of their biases. In, in addition, um, you know, still against women and sort of some unhealthy um, workforce behaviors. Um, so but it's good. I think it's good that he's attempting 
to say, hey, this is what the culture is. He needs to do a little bit more in defining what it is so that the employee can decide, is this the environment I want to work in? Do my values align with this organization or not? What's the most common ethical dilemma that you may have seen among companies or does corporate America always seem to come up with a new way to make you smack yourself on the forehead? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess I, I feel like there's so many issues that companies are dealing with right now. And there's research that is just released that reinforces the fact that organizations that can manage their human resources and uh, the engagement level of their employees the best will over time return the most value to the shareholder. So um, we're all compelled to figure out um, and help organizations, all kinds of organizations, for-profit, non-profit, um, to be able to sort through uh, what is in the best interests of the employees as a key constituent. It, it, it feels like you want everybody on the same page. The idea is that you want the company to succeed. But um, at, at some point, it does. It's incumbent upon the employee to, to also take care of themselves mm-hmm. and and know whether or not you know what they're willing to put up with, right? And to decide that it's time that they either are going to have uh, some effect and that they're going to be heard. So when they make comments about things that they see that aren't working well in the workforce, that those are responded to or not. Um, but yes, ultimately, I think we all have a choice um, uh, about moving around. That doesn't negate, that doesn't take away the responsibility of companies to do their best to create a culture and particularly an inclusive culture. And that research also supports that when it is the CEO, him or herself, who signals how strongly they value that, then that is much more likely to attract uh, women and minorities to the workplace. Okay, let's look at some successful leaders. Um, They're not always the most warm and fuzzy um, or loved. You know, you had uh, Steve Jobs, brilliant guy, difficult to work with. Um, he launched, but then la- and also later rescued uh, Apple. But you have then Tim Cook, who's a very different kind of leader. I'm wondering, can one person both, you know, launch a company with their ideas and then also nurture that innovation that keeps it flying high? Or, you know, are, are, are geniuses and innovators not necessarily the best people to, to run a company? I think that's really uh, depends on the individual. There are some really um, outstanding people who, you know, are very adaptable and resilient. They change over time and they're able to identify, hey, what my organization even needed from me, the founder leader in the early days is not what it needs from me now. Some of them are savvy enough to say, whoops, I don't actually have that skill set. I better go hire it and bring it in. Others uh, may step aside altogether. Um, I think that there is... uh, you know, sort of sustainable leadership, if you want to say what's healthy leadership over time, leaders really need to have a decent dose of self-awareness and reflection. And they also need to be willing to take breaks, um, to step out of leadership roles and pause. I mean, one of the things that's, I think, um, to note in the Steve Jobs timeline, for example, is that there was a break. Yeah. You know, he was the early leader and then he fully stepped away and he probably had an opportunity to learn some things about himself and maybe or maybe not do things differently when he returned to the organization. But both he and the organization were at a different point in time. Um, we've seen a lot of, of big names in, in the Silicon Valley area. They're sort of referred to as like tech totalitarians, um, you know, how, how their, their style is. And, and so much so that they've been parodied by that HBO uh, series, Silicon Valley. And this is the fictional CEO, Gavin Belson. If there is any greatness in any of you at all, now is the time to access it, please. 
I don't know about you people, but I don't want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place, better than we do. I've heard people say what's scary about this show is that it is so accurate in its depiction of the culture. Do you do, do you agree? I mean, is it good news and bad news? It's um, freakishly spot on and very funny as a result um, in a in a tragic way for people who are familiar with the Silicon Valley culture. Uh, it also starts to bring forward this show and, uh, um, and other examples, Emily Chang's recent book, Brotopia, what's so challenging about the culture for women and minorities or people that feel themselves, um, you know, in some way, not the majority population. In the- Do they themselves have to recast um, characters or write them differently in order to try and illustrate a little bit of diversity? Well, I think, you know, there some of the things that come forward in this show are just sort of the unapologetic competitive nature right. <laughs> of um, of men. And that isn't necessarily an environment in which many women, for example, thrive. So just dealing with the gender differences. Um, and so that's one example that, that I can think of. Okay, so we talk a lot about the, the men that are in charge, but, you know, you, you also hear, at least I took notice of a lot of significant names where you have the Meg Whitmans and the Marissa Meyer and Cheryl Sandbergs. And, but there are very few women as, as boss. Why is that? There are different factors that trip women up, but I think increasingly there's an awareness that they, these are much more subtle and uh, woven into the corporate experience for women. There's a loneliness for many of them. Again, I've mentioned this sort of uh, competitive nature. They mm-hmm. just are not um, interested, frankly, in working in an environment where they're constantly sort of being asked to compete in very frontal ways with colleagues and other executives and some deeply rooted barriers that are both um, uh, societally, uh, you know, cultural as opposed to the corporate culture. And then there's some policy that needs to be adjusted to make things like the motherhood penalty less of a reality for women so that there's policy that supports healthier family leave and care for elderly adults and all of those things where we know that the United States lags behind most other developed countries in providing that kind of fundamental support, not just to women, but to families in general. When a woman steps down, though, I was reading the New York Times article about how very uh, few of them are replaced by women. And why is it? Is it just that you don't have enough in the pipeline or um, some people it was touched on said that uh, they don't want to be accused of bias? They, they don't want to say just because you're a woman, you're you know obligated to appoint a woman to replace you. Right. And so we're sort of saying um, if you look over in the political realm, we're starting to see races in politics where we have two women running against each other. Okay. And once you see that, then the gender thing's sort of out of the picture. Right. Now mm-hmm. you're just talking about the qualifications of the candidate. So you have to think about how can you take that experience from the political realm and recreate it in organizational life. And it's kind of challenging. It means that you've got to be really investing in a number of women who could be considered. I mean, wouldn't it be a a wonderful thing if what a company was picking between when it ultimately came down to who should be the next CEO is two women? Right. Right. So that's not actually happening all that often. And there are certainly things that New York Times article and others have pointed to the involvement of the previous CEO in bringing forward uh, a whole uh, group of people who could be considered, but especially in investing in women that they think will have the capacity over time to provide the leadership that the organization needs. In the story of um, the recent uh, announcement of the Pepsi CEO Mm -hmm. stepping Mm -hmm. down, 
she and others make the point that the her predecessor spent I, don't know, I think like five years preparing her for that role, and so it, you have to be able to have a group of women who are being prepared for that role and men at any given point in time to be able to have that critical mass when it's time to pick the next successor. And those people could ultimately leave too, right? I mean, it's like having a great, you know, minor league team and then they get shipped off somewhere else. Right. And I think she tells that in her case that some of the women that she had in the pipeline as potential successors behind her uh, did leave. They moved on to other organizations because they simply uh, you know, had the opportunity and maybe were concerned that they weren't going to get the chance to take the top job at Pepsi. And why wouldn't they have that concern? Because it is so unlikely, right, that one that a company we haven't seen, but I think in maybe three companies, a t- turnover from one woman to the next. So if a woman is the CEO and you're a senior woman, what are your what are your odds actually of being the next CEO? You could argue that they're lower. Right. And in terms of following a female CEO. And so, yes, of course, you might jump ship. Yeah, you're better off, you know, seeking going somewhere else where where you would be valued. I would like I would like to think that companies um, would repeatedly or reinforce the notion that, um, you know, we can't tell you we're being we're grooming you for this job. But that's the kind of path that you're on and and sort of allay those doubts in their mind that, um, you know, I have a career trajectory here. Yes, is up. But even, I mean, I had that experience early in my career. I worked for Knight Ritter and they absolutely were wonderful and they were recognized by a Catalyst and others as being a company especially strong at uh, promoting women across the board. And they were absolutely intentional. I mean, they were very clear with uh, many of us that they that they hoped for us to be able to move into senior leadership positions in the company. Now, we could pause and observe that Knight Ritter no longer exists. Right. Um, so our organizations, yes, our organizations that are, you know, carrying the water on such in, in such pioneer ways on basic things, um, you know, sustainable over time. There were other forces in that case, uh, sort of the advent of the Internet and what happened to the newspaper industry. Um, but I think even when those conversations happen, and even when you feel that you have good mentors and support and so many people pulling for you and helping you, still, if you encounter the colleague who wants to back to the competitive environment, um, you know, come at you frontally in meetings and take you on and just trash your, your whole business unit is performing poorly and sort of that kind of um, way of working, and you, that, that's simply uninteresting for a lot of people. And they don't want to participate in that. So if that's the predominant culture or the way that men, as they get more senior, tend to behave, it makes it it's just another challenge for women as they become more senior to find it even interesting to do the work. Okay, we were talking before we went on the air. 30 years ago, a movie came out called Working Girl, had Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver, who was the executive, who was her manager. And at the time, I thought it was super to see something like that on the screen. You know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. Okay, turns out she was a ruthless snake. But um, is it truly an archaic notion that a woman has to be that way in order to compete um, and with, with a man on, on a level playing field? Um, because when you talk about uh, coming at you, you know, frontally at a, me- at a meeting and holding people's feet to the fire and, and not being kind of like, you know, soft and, okay, you know, let me take you by this, you know, over to the side after a meeting and ask you how this is going. Um, I-, I can see how that could feel uh, foreign and a little bit hostile 
you know, based on on what you're used to. But, you know, I, I, I see a movie like this and it seems frozen in time, you know, minus the shoulder pads, that it's the same thing. Well, there's so many things here. So let's try and, as they say, unpack them a little bit. Um, there is... Um, so it's not just the the frontal competition sort of piece. It's that if if someone decides to um, be that blunt in their criticism of somebody else professionally, a woman's response to that typically is simply to not respond. And so then that there's a there is a perception there about them as a leader in that non-response. And is that fair or not? When the woman does decide to respond, let's say she says, "Okay, you're going to bite. I'm going to bite back." Then she gets tagged as being overly aggressive or nasty or difficult to work with, non-collaborative. By both men and women? Yes. Okay. And, um, and in fact, uh, we, you know, we see that women are more tolerant of some of those kinds of uh, dismissive um, or just crankiness, office crankiness. You know, everybody has a bad day. Right. Far more tolerant of it um, in, from men at certain positions than they might be uh, of women. In this particular uh, vignette from Working Girl, yeah, then there's this this sort of um, suggestion that you must become a shameless self-promoter and really put yourself out there repeatedly. And in fact, when women do that, that turns people off. So some of the same things that work for other people, uh, for men, don't seem to translate when women do try and apply them in the workplace. Okay, so that's a, that's a double standard that that is a societal issue that, you know, maybe we, we can't. We can't help. You just got to work with the tools that, that, that you're given, right? But does that mean that you have to change your personality? I think increasingly this is part of the story that we're seeing in the senior ranks of women. Is women just aren't willing to do that, right? And 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 we and corporations are starting to recognize with over 50% of the college population is female that, that the corporations now need to do some things to figure out how to make it um, attractive places for women to work or otherwise they're going to lose an incredible, uh, you know, at part of the talented workforce. And so, um, no, I don't think women need to change their personality. And I don't think um, that they need to, uh, you know, take on personas that they're not comfortable with. I do think they need to continue to advocate for themselves. And I think there are some other things that are happening in society. Some are working for them and some are working against them. Uh, so in the technological digital age, um, one of the things that works maybe against women and minorities is the sense that anybody who is not like us, you know, is that this tendency to start making people sinister that we do um. not um, see as like us because we're not spending enough time in the way that we read, in the way that we interact with people, in our interpersonal um, uh, relationships to teach and develop empathy, to help people to um, recognize that somebody else might be having a very different lived experience that's still very valid. So that's one thing that's working against them. One thing that's working for women is increased transparency in data. So in the story of Salesforce deciding to uh, correct the pay, the gender pay gap it discovered was just having the data to be able to look at what are women in the organization being paid and then having the wherewithal and the leadership in uh, to go back and look at it again and say, oh, it turns out we have to keep making this adjustment because as we bring in people from other organizations, we keep recreating the the pay gap. And so it's an ongoing uh, work that we need to do, not just a one time only fix. So um, we're learning, you know, we're learning to use uh, the tools that we have, the data sets that we have. 
We're learning to come back to things multiple times until we have a more systemic fix. And we have uh, transparency now through many social media and other uh, tools that help women and minorities to be able to make the case, to bring forward the facts when they're there. And with that, we wrap up another edition of In-Depth. Our guest this week has been Ann Skeet, Senior Director of the Leadership Ethics of Leadership Ethics at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.